Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. Hey, thank you, team, for leading us in worship. Can we give the band a hand and honor them for leading us in worship? Thank you so much. What a great way to start worship today. Um, I really needed that. Um, I don't know about you. There's sometimes when our band is just leading, and this morning I felt like strength was flowing into my soul through worshiping God. It's one of the weird conundrums and paradoxes of faith and following Jesus is that when you're trying to give him honor, he's giving you strength back at the exact same secular time. It's a cool thing for me. So anyway, thank you, team. Really grateful for that. Um, It's an honor for me to be back here in person, uh, preaching with all of you and speaking and communicating with all of you here today and with everybody online. This is the first time I've gotten to be in person and sharing with everybody since Christmas Eve, Eve, I believe. Um, how many of you were here for that service that we did outdoors? Lots of hands. Wasn't that just a magical, great experience? Um, it's great to be back here in person in this room here today, but I'll show you some pictures from that night. Um, here's the first one that we took, and one of our staff members was a creeper and went on the roof and took that picture. And um, here's another one taken from the ground. It was such a special evening. Over 500 people showed up for that service. Yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool. And that, that was the, that was the shocker for us was we thought, oh, yeah, some people come to this like, oh, this was the big thing for Christmas. Whoa. And, um, so we, we took a couple notes from that night. One, it was felt like a magical evening. Like we're outside. The weather was perfect. There was Christmas lights. We sang carols. We lit candles or at least broke glow sticks outside so we didn't start a forest fire. You know, we did all that stuff. It was, it was a wonderful evening, but many of our team left with that going, okay, we're, Lord, we think we're paying attention here. There's something here to this. And then we heard from several people who it was wonderful seeing that we hadn't seen in months who are still not yet ready to come back to in-person worship because the pandemic keeps going up and down, up and down, up and down, and like the spike that we're currently in right now. And um, several people told us lovingly, like, please, um, would you consider things more like this? And um, especially, I imagine you're, all you who are here in person, this is great. You guys are here. This is really for people who are streaming online who aren't ready to come back. Uh, we want you to know, I want you to hear it straight from me and from the platform here. We heard you. And I'm so excited to announce that we're going to start having regular outdoor worship services. Yeah, it's really great. Our very first one is coming up in just three weeks. It's on Sunday, February 6th at 5 p.m. And no, that is not Super Bowl Sunday, Okay. You will miss 0% of football on that Sunday. It's a real thing. We know people love Jesus. I mean, but come on. So um, so it's Sunday night, February 6th at 5 p.m. Now, here's the deal. We're not doing, we're going to do this monthly, okay? We're going to start like that. It's going to be monthly on the first Sunday of every month. We're going to do this outdoor service. It's bring your own chair, bring your own blanket, like much like we did at Christmas Eve. It's going to be family-friendly and kid-friendly. It's going to be very fun. What's different that we have not done in the past is we're going to serve communion at this. So some of you who aren't ready yet to come back in person, um, some of you haven't taken communion 
at church in maybe two years. And so we're excited. If you're comfortable coming for an outdoor um, service, we're going to serve communion every single time, the first Sunday of every month. We're so thrilled about that. So make sure you come check it out. It's always weather permitting. You know, we do live in South Florida, so we always have to put an asterisk on that. But we're just thrilled to announce that we can't wait to see you and purses ways we can help serve that part of our community. So we're excited about that. So can we give a hand for that? Isn't that a good thing? Yeah. And we're hoping, we're hoping many of you who um, don't feel comfortable yet, that we're hoping this will help you come home and feel more connected to your church home. We hear you. We care about you. We love you. We know you're there. So that's a great thing. Okay, so if you haven't already, go ahead and grab your Bible or your Bible app and go ahead and open that up with the COH app. We're going to dive into the message today. Now, last week, Pastor Dale did a great job kicking us off in the series we're calling How Life Works. Everyone say that. How life works. And what we're talking about is we're going through verse by verse through the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what we're talking about in this, pa- in this sermon is very different than what we've done in the past. Usually, some t- we usually we preach topically at our church, like we pick um, a topic that's relevant in culture or a topic specifically from the Bible, and we expound upon that. Occasionally, we'll do a character. Occasionally, we'll kind of do a book of the Bible. Um, but for this, we're going to go verse by verse through the three chapters of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, to study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're really excited about this. Um, ultimately, what we think Jesus is getting at with his Sermon on the Mount is he's talking about his, his vision of how life works best the way God designed it. You can see this clearly at the very tail end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is our theme verse for the series. It's Matthew chapter 7. Verse 24, and Jesus says this in conclusion. It's much like the song that we sang, Build My Life. It's much like that. It's where that song gets this inspiration from this verse. Verse 24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so that's our theme verse for this series. And if you are trying to memorize scripture, that's the one to memorize for this series. And so we just think it's Jesus' vision for how life works best. Now, I personally am really excited to preach in this because the Sermon on the Mount means a lot to me personally. Um, many of you, if you've been coming to Community Folk for any period of time, you know that um, you've heard this story before, but I just like to keep sharing it because for those of you who are new, and it's also just relevant to my own story, um, growing up, I used to hate going to church. Like, hate it with a passion of a thousand sons. Hated going to church. I don't know. Look at me now. Ha, 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 I really disliked it. Um, my mom and dad took me anyway. Thank God they did. But um, I hated going to church. It was um, very ornate, felt very old, felt very confusing, I knew nobody. I had no friends there. It felt boring. It felt very confusing. There's symbols everywhere that I had no idea what they meant. There's paintings around the church that went to everywhere where Jesus was holding a lamb. Like everywhere was some portrait of Jesus holding a lamb. And as a kid, I was like, why does he like lambs so much? That's so weird. Why isn't he holding golden retrievers? Clearly, they're the superior pet to lambs. I know why he's not holding a cat instead of a golden retriever. I know that. But still, you know, Jesus likes dogs better than cats. Everyone knows that. That's in the Bible. You know, but still, like, I don't understand any of this. This is all so weird to me. Ugh, I hated Sunday morning. It was the worst. It was the, the only redeemable thing was going to eat semi-stale donuts that were available in the fellowship hall after church, if I could find ones that were still available. 
And so um, my family, uh, my mom eventually started to work as a preschool teacher um, at a different church in town. We were connected to that church. She was just a preschool teacher there. And then uh, they had a Sunday at that church where they invited all the preschool teachers to come so they could honor them and their families. And so we went. And it was very different than anything I'd ever experienced ever before in my life. I remember the pastor had a microphone. And in the special song section, it wasn't even a contemporary church at the time. They had an electric guitar for one special song. And I literally went as a 9 or 10-year-old and went, you're not allowed to have electricity in church? He's using a microphone. This is sacrilegious. I mean, like... I was shocked. Now, look at me. There's so much electricity on this stage. We could power a small city in the Midwest, you know? So, like, and so, but this church changed my life um, because they loved and taught the Bible, made it relevant, and made it understandable. Like, they put handles on stuff that I could get. They loved kids. It wasn't an afterthought. It was one of their primary thoughts. And so, there was people who loved kids and who taught the Bible, made it come alive. And this is the Bible that um, my church gave me when I was 10 years old. This is my very first one. And you can see it on the inside here. Um, you don't need to zoom in on the camera. You probably can't tell. But here's stains of probably Coca-Cola or something from being a kid. And my chicken scratch Trevor Johnston 10-year-old handwriting that this Bible belonged to me. And this is the first Bible I ever owned. And, um, and I, the reason I brought this here today is because I don't remember how, I don't remember who. All I remember is this Bible is the first time I ever felt the presence of God. And when I was a kid, when I was like 10, maybe 11, somewhere, somehow, somebody told me to read Matthew chapter 5. Maybe it was because that's where the most read was, and so I started there. I don't know. But when I started reading the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, as a 10 or 11-year-old, it was the very first time I felt the presence of God. It was this page in this book right here that began my journey as a Christ follower that changed my life in a million ways for the best. And so I brought this here today, not as Trevor's little show and tell, but I brought this here and I'll put this on the altar as maybe a a visual prayer for me and for us. There may be someone here today too will experience the presence of God for the very first time today by reading Matthew chapter 5, which is where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. So Dale started us off last week, and he did the first 16 verses, which is good. Dr. David Bauer, who is a New Testament scholar and teaches at Asbury Theological Seminary, which is my seminary alma mater and my wife's and Dale's and Beth's and Haley's and Brandon's and several other people on our team. Um, Jessica's studying there now. Lots of people have studied there. He's one of the most uh, renowned New Testament scholars in the world, as particularly in the book of Matthew. This man, Dr. David Bauer, has Matthew memorized in Greek. All 28 chapters in Greek. So I think he might know a thing or two about this. He says the first 16 verses, what we covered last week, was kind of the preamble for the Sermon on the Mount. Everything that's covered in those first 16 verses is about the character of somebody who belongs in Jesus' kingdom. And Pastor Dale told us last week, really the key verse, if you get this verse right in the Sermon on the Mount, you get everything else right in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 3, which says it here, it's going to be on the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is really saying here is that you are blessed if you understand that you are spiritually bankrupt, spiritually empty, that I have no good thing to offer, and I understand how badly I need God. If that's your posture, 
the kingdom of heaven is yours. And so this is what we're trying to approach this whole series with. Not that we have it all together, not that we're going to spike the football and run victory laps around the place, but we're coming with a poverty of spirit going, uh, Lord, I need you really badly. And I haven't got all of this right, and I haven't gotten all of it right. And there's some things I'm probably getting wrong right now that I need you to speak to. And so if we approach it with that spirit, with that humility, we'll step into Jesus' vision of what does it mean to be a citizen of his kingdom and to belong and to learn how life works best. And we're going to need that spirit and that posture of humility all throughout this series. So now today we're going to embark on a journey of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 17. Now, we're going to look at these transformative but challenging sayings of Jesus. Pastor Dale named it last week, and I'll name it again today, that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount in the next several weeks, have a little bit of grace and a little bit of mercy on your pastors, because there is going to be, I kid you not, literally all of us here in this room are probably going to be offended in some way, form, or fashion by something Jesus says. All that to say, don't shoot the messenger, okay? Please, please. Some of you are like, well, we'll see, preacher boy, okay? <laughs> now, don't shoot the messenger. It's offensive to me too sometimes, and we need that, don't we? And so if we have poverty, yeah, thank you. We need to, I need to be offended by Jesus sometimes, because if Jesus never offends me, am I, he's making me into his image, or have I made him into mine? So it's okay if we get a little offended here. We can all put on our big girl pants or our big boy pants, and we can all be in this together and just have mercy on me, okay? And if you don't like anything I say, just send your email to brandon at communityofhope.church, <laughs> please. Now, all that to say, um, in all seriousness, there's some controversial, I shouldn't say controversial, just some challenging things that we're going to say this week. Particularly next week, this is a heads up, especially for those of you who are streaming online and might have kids in the room. Next week is going to be a little PG-13. Pastor Dale is going to cover the topics of Jesus and sexuality, okay? So parents, just use your discretion at home. Um, it's still going to be great Bible teaching, but it's going to be a little PG-13. So everybody buckle in for that, okay? Good? Deal? Great. So have a little bit of mercy on your associate pastor today. Let's all lean in and let Jesus speak to our lives. We're going to be in Matthew 5, verse 17. So let's jump in. This is what he says here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teachings and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. 
Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Therefore, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, friends, let's pray. Jesus, we have come to build our life upon your teachings, not just to agree with you, but to do what you say. Would you help us to build our life upon the rock of your love? And as as a person who identifies as a citizen of your kingdom. Lord, I pray for those who are navigating faith today, who are new to faith, maybe new to Christianity, or maybe they're they're trying church again for the first time in a long time because they were burnt before. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help them experience your love today and that by hearing about your kingdom, what does it mean to belong in it, that they would see the beauty in it and would want to become part of your kingdom because of what it all means and represents, that they would be won over with beauty. So come, Holy Spirit, not my words, but your words. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so if Dr. Bauer says verse 1 through 16 is the preamble, the intro, he says in verse 17 is beginning on, for the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, is what is the requirement of somebody who lives as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus begins his discourse by first referring to his ideas around Scripture. Now, Jesus gets misunderstood all the time. He starts off going, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. And in our culture today, everybody misunderstands Jesus. Jesus is all about love, which he is. He's all about love, God, and love people, which he is. So, man, it's just about love, God, and love people. Put all this stuff aside. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding me. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. And what he means by that is he's not here to put aside this book and what this book teaches about how life works best and what does it mean to follow God. He's here to show us what does it mean to fulfill these laws and rules and commands from a heart level. He's not here to lower the bar. He's actually here to raise the bar and fulfill them. And he does it all here in himself. It's pretty profound. And he's commonly misunderstood. He was misunderstood then, and he's misunderstood. Understood now. I mean, it's amazing when Jesus talks about this. He's like, not the least stroke of a pen will fall away until everything has been fulfilled. The literal in the Greek of that is the equivalent of Jesus saying, not the dot of an I from this book will fall away until everything is accomplished. Like, we get our high view of Scripture not because we're in the South and we're Bible thumpers. We get our high view of Scripture because Jesus had a really, really high view of Scripture. Does that make sense? So this is where we're kind of coming from, from a lot of this. Now, setting the stage, what Jesus is trying to do here is talking about really identity, the identity of a citizen of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, somebody who's living into and under his identity. There's a lot of things he covers in these few verses. He talks about uh, the idea of murder, but then he also addresses um, heart issues like murder, but then goes deeper and says, actually, let's talk about your anger. And he says, anybody, like, which is interesting here when he says, anybody who says Raka, and I don't know about you, I don't remember the last time I was down on the street and said Raka to somebody. <laughs> or, you know, he says, or even in, because that's an ancient Aramaic word, or when he says fool, and I don't know about you, I can't remember the last time I pointed at somebody at City Place and went fool. You know, I don't do that. You don't do that. What Jesus is getting at here is the type of anger 
that would speak to a person and call somebody an idiot. Jesus says, if you're calling somebody an idiot in your heart, you are in danger of hell. Jesus said it. That makes me want to quit social media immediately, permanently, forever and ever and ever. I'll go back to the Stone Age, you know? Um, It's pretty powerful. It's pretty challenging. And then he even talks about the idea of reconciliation, where he's even saying, don't engage in worship until you're reconciled with somebody. More, more matters to God that you're right in your relationships, that you come and sing louder, you give an offering to him. These are serious words. This is challenging stuff. Now, what's interesting is how Jesus, again, is framing this whole beginning section of what does it mean, what's required of somebody who lives as his kingdom, as part of his kingdom. Matthew 5, 19 says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is, if you're going to be a follower of me, you can't pick and choose. If you're going to be a follower of me, you can't pick and choose. Now, why would somebody, as a follower of Jesus' kingdom, pick or choose which commands to live by and which ones not to live by. And do people do that? Oh, yeah, people do that. Have you guys ever heard about Thomas Jefferson's Bible? You ever heard about that? So um, I hate to tell anybody who's 30 and under, you won't hear about this in Hamilton, okay? Um, But Thomas Jefferson um, actually took razors and scissors to the pages of the New Testament to cut out the pieces that he disagreed with. And here's actually a picture of what's called the Jefferson Bible. Here it is. This is literally his Bible. And what he did was he was eliminating portions he disagreed with. Um, he, took out, uh, he took out pieces that included signs of Jesus' divinity. He took out passages he considered over the top or that offended his Enlightenment-era sense of reason. He literally cut them out. It's called the Jefferson Bible. It was private and secret to him. He developed it later on in his life because if it came out that he cut up pages of the Bible, oh my gosh, it would have been widely controversial in his day and age. And this is somebody who just really deeply struggled with faith and religion and doubt. And so um, I'm not putting that up here so we could judge Thomas Jefferson because remember, we're coming here with poverty of spirit, right? 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 We're not here to judge Thomas Jefferson. I'm putting that up here to show you might not have taken razors or scissors to the Bible, but we have done it with our own neglect. And we have neglected passages of Scripture because of our convenience or because of a competing ideology that competes with our identity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Let me illustrate this. Um, Dr. and renowned pastor Tim Keller, um, renowned pastor and author Tim Keller, um, makes a beautiful observation about church history. And he says that there are four things that the first followers of Jesus, like the first eyewitnesses and the generation or two right after them, that they were marked by and known by. The early church was marked by a few things. He said this. They were first startlingly multiracial. The first followers of Jesus were startlingly multiracial. multiracial. They were an unbelievable mix of different ethnicities, Jews, Gentiles, and other, living in community together as equals under the name of Jesus. 
So the first followers of Jesus, it was mind-boggling to the rest of the ancient world that people of different ethnicities and races came under the roof of one building under the banner of one name, and they were all considered equal. If you believe all people are equal, regardless of race or status or where you're from or the color of your skin, that's not an idea you got from the world. That's an idea the world got from Jesus. Yeah, amen, amen. They were, so they were startlingly multiracial. They were radically pro-life. They were radically pro-life. The church was a defender of all human life from womb to tomb. Um, After the writings of the scripture, the writings of the New Testament were solidified, the oldest Christian document that we have, that historians have, again, it's not in the Bible, but it's a great, wonderful document. It's like the equivalent of we study the Bible and occasionally we'll have a really amazing, helpful book from a pastor. This is like that. The earliest document we have that's outside of the Bible that the first church referenced all the time is a document called the Didache. And this is one of the lines from the Didache. It says this here, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is born. So the early church rejected both abortion and infanticide. And if people in the first century didn't abort a child, they would um, practice infanticide, but after they give birth to a child, they would abandon it and leave it out in the fields or leave it somewhere to die by nature. And the first Christians were defenders of life. They were the ones who cared about children, who cared about orphans because of the teachings of Jesus. They're the ones who welcomed the fatherless and the motherless and were the defender of the helpless. They were radically pro-life from womb to tomb. They were devotedly caring for the poor. They took the words of Jesus deeply serious from Matthew 25, that we should care for the hungry, the thirsty, and for those on the margins of society. The concept of hospitals, that you should take care of sick and suffering people, was invented by Christians. The idea that you should have compassion for the poor and that you should have compassion for those on the outskirts of society is a distinctly Christian value. That if you care about the marginalized of society, you wouldn't care about that if it weren't for Jesus and the people called by Jesus' name. And lastly, they were sexually countercultural. They were sexually counterculture. Now, before I completely open this can of worms, I'm going to leave this for Dale to discuss next week. So Dale, hot potato, here, catch, you know. Um, But I will say this, like we're going to talk about this a lot more next week, but I will say this. What is considered traditional and old-fashioned views of sexuality today was not that in the first century. What's considered traditional and old-fashioned today was considered fringe culturally. In the first century, the ethics of Jesus were radically different around sex and sexuality in the first century world. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? The early church was these four things. If you bring these four things into context here and today, here's the problem with this. And this is what Dr. Keller brings this amazing observation about. Two of these ideas are considered very progressive today. And two of these ideas are considered very conservative today. And in our country... It's harder and harder to find churches that will talk about all four of these because they're afraid of the stigma of either being called progressive or being called conservative. And in Jesus' name, we want to be the type of church that we don't care about the political label. We're going to do all four. We're going to do the way of Jesus. Yeah. 
That's where we're trying to be as a church. We're not going to buy into the ideology that says you have to be one or the other. This is where the identity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven trumps other ideologies that compete with it. People pick and choose passages of scripture because you've bought into an ideology of the world instead of as an identity of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your ethics as a follower of Jesus and the citizen of the kingdom of heaven should lead you to disagree with places of your political party. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with having a political opinion or to have, you know, to be involved in it. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Use your rights as an American citizen to get involved and to vote. Those are all awesome things that people all over the world would kill to have. So I'm not saying that. But I am saying, man, if my views of Jesus agree completely with my political platform, I think my platform has co-opted my identity as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And it should be the other way around. Can I say it? Amen. All right. I just want to say this, that when collapsed into a political narrative, your politics will leave you short of the whole gospel of Jesus. And we don't pick and choose. We want to say yes to everything he has for us. Everything he has for us. I'm going to read a quote here from Pastor John Mark Comer. There's a picture of him in his wonderful book I'd highly recommend called Live No Lies. He talks about this with ideology. He says, as a pastor, I get to sit with a fascinating array of people from across the sociopolitical spectrum. Over the last few years, I've watched so many people, both on the left and the right, be taken captive by ideology. It's grieved my heart. Ideology is a form of idolatry. It's a secular attempt to find metaphysical meaning to life, a way to usher in utopia without God. The best definition I know of ideology is when you take part, a part of the truth and make it the whole. In doing so, you imprison your own mind and heart in lies that drive you to anger and anxiety. It promises freedom but produces the opposite. It does not expand and liberate the soul, but shrinks and enslaves it. And that is such a perfect description of our society and our culture today in the West. Are you going to choose identity as a follower of Jesus? Or are you going to choose your ideology? I choose identity. Or at least I'm trying to, right? Um, Here's two more examples of this in our world. This weekend celebrates two things that our culture says kind of compete, but they don't. So this weekend we celebrate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who was um, one of the, this is what's fascinating when I learned about this with Dr. King this week. We obviously know he was a great leader in the civil rights movement, preached racial justice and racial equality and racial unity for our country. Um, did you know that he's the only non-president memorialized on the wall in Washington, D.C.? And he's the only non-president in our country who has his own holiday, which is pretty cool if a preacher can get a holiday with presidents. I mean, that's good news for me. You know, I'm like, hey, all right. I'm just kidding. No, um, Here's what's fascinating. I believe Dr. King was a prophet to our nation, and his methods of nonviolent resistance worked because he got them from the Sermon on the Mount, guys. That's why it worked. It was energized by the teachings of Jesus. And we here at Community of Hope, man, we stand with Dr. King. 
And people think, well, to really celebrate MLK weekend, some people think, well, that's more of a progressive idea to do that. And we're here to say it's not a progressive thing. It's a Jesus thing to celebrate this. And let me just say is for everybody here, coming from the pasty, white, hairy, Scottish guy (laughs) to every brown and black person in this room and every brown and black person maybe streaming online and every brown and black kid who's streaming online, from me to you, let me tell you, you are community of hope and you belong. And it is our dream as a church to be a multicultural, multiracial, multilingual church. We took a big step in learning how to do that better when COH Espanol joined us and we learned lots of things about how to do that better and we're still learning how to do that better. And we are on our path to becoming that and we believe in that because we think that the, the first followers of Jesus show us that. Amen. It's not a progressive idea, it's a Jesus idea. And today is also National Sanctity of Life Sunday. Yes, on the very same Sunday. Ironically, so the idea of racial unity and racial reconciliation falling on the same Sunday when you're talking about pro-life issues. Did you know both of these days were signed into law by President Ronald Reagan less than a year apart from each other? Isn't that fascinating? Now, we believe in this, too, for National Sanctity of Life Sunday, uh, that this is thought of as more of a conservative day because it's a pro-life thing. It's not a conservative thing. It's a Jesus thing, that we believe life begins at conception, that Scripture teaches that, that everybody is woven together inside of their mother's womb, that God might not have orchestrated the situations of every single child being born, but God is with every single child being born and every single child that is conceived. And we believe in this and we're unashamedly pro-life here in our church. We support First Care Women's Clinic at our church, which is a parachurch ministry which helps women in crisis pregnancy situations choose life for their unborn child. Pastor Dale is literally on the board of First Care. My wife literally used to work for First Care. Pastor Jose's wife works for First Care. We care about this and we believe in it. And let me just say here, if you're somebody who's had an abortion or paid for an abortion and you're dealing with that, wrestling with that, let me just tell you, Jesus loves you. He doesn't hate you. He's not your enemy and we're not your enemy. Jesus loves you, died for you. Forgiveness and healing are real. One of the very first groups Pastor Dale started in our church was a group for women to recover and heal from abortions they've had. You belong and you're part of Community of Hope too. Amen. Yeah. Well, it's more of a progressive thing. No, it's not. It's a Jesus thing. Well, it's more of a conservative thing. No, it's not. It's a Jesus thing. We don't pick and choose. We don't pick and choose, friends. Our identity supersedes our ideologies. And those matter. These things don't compete. They work together. So as I'm wrapping all this up, as we wrap our service up today, what does all this mean to be a follower of Jesus from our passage? It means just a few quick things. It means first that all human life is valuable to God. This is why Jesus affirms, do not murder. We don't murder because every single person, whether you're unborn or born, physically, intellectually gifted or disabled, young or old, black or white, or everything in between, all human life is valuable to God. This is why murder is a commandment that's forbidden because people are made in the image of God. All people, all people, all people, all people. All life is valuable to God. 
Being a follower of Jesus means that we must rid ourselves of what takes life from others. This is why Jesus went, well, good, you've never killed anybody, but are you killing them in your heart with your resentment and your anger and your outrage? This is why he said, no, let's be clear here. God gets angry. Jesus got angry. We see that clearly from scriptures. Who wouldn't get angry when you see some of the injustices going on in the world? That's not what he's talking about. Not righteous anger, but the type of anger that wants to eliminate people or call somebody an idiot or to devalue the life of another person made in the image of God, even if you strongly disagree with them. Which, let me just say here as your preacher today, there is an industry that makes mil- or industries that make millions of dollars off this. Like I said, social media is probably a net negative for our society because of how it feeds outrage. There's a multi-million dollar industry that sells paraphernalia for calling our leaders idiots, regardless of whatever political party you're in. If you're engaged in that, Jesus is warning us that we are in danger of judgment and we should knock it off. We should repent from it and turn from it. It's not the way of Jesus. We're better than this. And we should learn to walk in his ways and be different and not add fire, fuel to the flames, but rather be sources of life and peace. That's who we should be, not gasoline pourers on fires. And lastly, we must pursue what gives life to other people. Not just refrain from what takes life from others, but also be life givers. This is what Jesus talks about with being reconcilers. That we are the people of peace who bring relationships together. Whether it be a personal, whether it be personal, whether it be relational, whether it be familial or racial, Jesus wants all of us to be reconcilers and be agents of life and unity and peace in the world. And this is ultimately what it means to live out the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just for how life works for me, but how life will work for the world. He said it last week, and Pastor Dale covered it. You are the light of the world. We're not only going to not take life, we're going to give life for ourselves and for others if we live with our identities right as citizens and not something lesser. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand if you're able for our benediction? We're out of time today. But we're just going to take a moment of prayer. I'm going to dismiss you. So would you bow your heads? And so I just invite you, uh, just in your own heart right now, Why don't you ask the Lord, what does this mean for you? Ask him, how does he want you to apply this to your life? This is another yielding moment to the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Lords, to King Jesus. Lord, help us to be wise builders. Help us to build our lives, not in our ideologies, but upon the rock of your teachings. Lord, we repent for ways that we've listened more to our politics than to your preaching. We're sorry we've gotten it wrong. We repent, we turn, we change our minds. We lay that down before you. And we want to live as true citizens of your kingdom. So I pray for everybody here and everybody watching online or listening to this later in a podcast. Would you pour out grace on all of us as we apply your teachings to our life that you would fill us with life and joy and peace as we follow you. 
and flow through us life and joy and peace to the world as we walk in your ways. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Friends, we're gonna have some prayer teams come up here in the front who'll be willing to pray for you for anything you need. Otherwise, go in God's peace. We'll see you next week.